Hello, everybody. Today we are with Mark Arena, the founder and former CEO of Intel 471. Uh, hello, Mark. How are you? Hello, and thanks for the opportunity. Great to have you with us. Disclosure, this is also my first uh, ever call with uh, Mark. I've heard lots, lots of good things uh, about Mark from Simon and got to see lots of his activity from LinkedIn, but never got to speak to him. So that's, uh, that's also very exciting for me. So, Mark, looking at your resume and your past and, and also, you know, nowadays your activity, it's pretty fascinating to see the, the, the past you've made throughout uh, different uh, roles around threat intelligence and cybersecurity. Can you, like, you know, put some light on, on your past and what got you to, for example, establishing Inter 471? So, in my background, I'm Australian, um, is originally software engineering. So programming, that's what I studied at university. Um, although I would say I'm a mediocre programmer, I'm not that good at it. I can do it, <laughs> but I'm not that good at it. So I worked as an engineer, software engineer programmer after university for a couple of years. Um, after a couple of jobs, I ended up working with the Australian Federal Police. So in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, I was a technical specialist there, not a police officer. So I was involved in investigations of all types when the offenders were technical or there was like a cyber nexus. And back then it was kind of slightly less than everything. It's kind of everything now, but it covered, of course, cyber crime, but also drug importations, counterterrorism, child exploitation, even murders as well. Mm -hmm. So I was working there for a number of years. And then I got offered a role um, at Eyesight Partners. And so Eyesight Partners is the threat intel company founded by John Waters. He's kind of one of the original OGs of cyber threat intelligence. He ran iDefense back in the day, sold them to VeriSign um, and then started iSight Partners. So I was recruited there as just a researcher. So uh -huh. a researcher in there, getting in the underground um, where criminals discuss, buy, sell, trade, talk about buying and selling of criminality and criminal things. And I was doing that. I was doing that from home in Australia. And pretty quickly, I got offered a position in European in the European headquarters for iSight Partners. And that was in Amsterdam. Um, for those who don't know, iSight is a part of Mandiant now, you know, which is obviously a part of Google. Um, yep. So yeah, I was promoted to the chief researcher and I started working really closely with a global team of about 40 or 50 people doing intelligence collection, kind of traditional intelligence collection against cyber threat actors. So that's financially motivated cyber criminals, nation states doing espionage, um, as well as kind of hacktivists or politically motivated threat actors. So we were collecting all of that. And when you're a security company, let's say you're like a Microsoft or a CrowdStrike, you, you collect or you can collect that or see that threat activity through your customers' networks. You know, what are your customers getting targeted with? But we were a threat intel company that was separate, didn't have access to that. So we had to go and get that. So we were looking at, for example, Chinese originated espionage. And so we looked at working with like dissidents, so Tibetans and other groups that the Chinese were targeting because the same intrusion groups targeting those dissidents were also targeting our customers and, uh, and their uh, sectors. So yeah, I was doing that as well as working um, people, you know, who are, who I guess researching threat actors in the deep and dark web, a term that I hate, but we call it kind of the criminal underground. I was doing that. And everything we did there was about feeding an internal system, which then eyesight's intelligence analysts who were mostly based in Washington, DC, 
would write kind of reports, these formal high-level kind of reports. Mm -hmm. And I was there for about three years. And at that point, it started with the big American banks, um, but they started hiring their own intelligence analysts. And these were former law enforcement, security service, military folks, and they wanted access to their own collection. So we were running like the collection capabilities of EyeSight. EyeSight was not really selling direct access to that information, that data we were producing. And they were more like the end result, the analytical part of what was being written. And so um, we got, uh, I saw an opportunity there um, and it was like, what if we started a company that just focused on really good intelligence collection? and sold to organizations with their own intelligence analysts. So that was the origin, the origination, the original idea of Intel 471. Obviously we do more, Intel 471 does more and finished Intel products now as well, but that was the start. And it was really the catalyst, like I said, starting with the banking industry in the US, hiring their own intelligence analysts. And it's, I always say like, nobody knows what's more timely and relevant of an, to an organization than an organization themselves. So it was kind of that, and it was really good timing. You know, one of the one of the top reasons why any startup is successful or not is based on timing. Timing of the market is the product made the writer is it too cutting edge? Like nobody wants to buy it. And thankfully, we were in a field that you know rapidly expands and rapidly maturing even even today. So yeah, that was the start of Intel four seven one. We bootstrapped it. We didn't raise any money. So. 100% funded by customer revenue, no debt. And uh, 2021, we sold a majority of the company to Tomo Bravo. Um, mm -hmm. They're the biggest private equity firm in cybersecurity. Yeah, I was a CEO up until recently. And I uh, just decided, you know, I'd had enough. I was based back living in Australia and didn't really want to stay in the role of CEO. So I'm an advisor there and I'm still on the board. And uh, Jason, who was basically the number two and co-founder at Intel 471, is the, is the new CEO there. Let me ask you a non-professional question. Up sure. to the point where you would, would you decide to start a company, and correct me if I'm wrong, you haven't started a company before, you were not uh, yet an entrepreneur, and you're in the U.S., you're originally, originally from Australia, you work with... Um, I was never in the U.S. I, was, I never lived in the U.S., was always living in Europe, so yeah. So yeah. even even more, uh, and and then you start to, to you know, to, you fund your own, your own company, in the in the U.S. with the mostly U.S. Uh, researchers, right? Where's the where? How's how did you have the guts to do that? Like, um, so the researchers were all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a case of, and I would say even more than that. Not just I hadn't started a company. I'd actually never dealt with a customer before or a prospect in my whole career. You you um, make it even even uh, worse. <laughs> yeah, I. I I just had a, and I still now have very, very good knowledge around cyber threat intelligence and how to build capabilities to kind of put nets around threat actors and track them in an ongoing way. I'm just really, really good at that. And unfortunately, even now, there's not that many people that can think like that. You know, Jason is another one to see currency of Intel 471 is one of the others, very few that I've met around the world that has those skills. So yeah, it was more the, um, I felt like I either had to do it or I never would be able to do it. Um, I didn't, I have a family now. I mean, I was married then, but didn't have a child, have a child now. Um, so it's a bit harder. Um, but yeah, it was basically a case of reduce your salary to as little as possible, um, uses the money to pay to hire folks. And yeah, we did hire folks outside the US um, to start. And a number of them are still work at Intel 471 today. So I think it was a team of three or four that, that started the company. Um, and another thing was just really the network I'd built so I'd go to say Black Hat every year 
I was very well networked in the cyber threat intelligence space in the commercial side, which is even now it's not that big. And uh, yeah, so they were the first people I reached out to and people that I knew as researchers who'd kind of um, been promoted up the ranks in their organizations, which was good timing again. They were people that were able to both trial the, the our intelligence offering early on and give really good feedback. And yes, yeah, some of them believed in what we were doing enough to to sign up. Do, do you remember what the what the first pitches were? What was the original pitch? Like, why should they give uh, you money? Uh, I think it was we would say actor actor centric intelligence. We we kind of said, and because at that time everybody was obsessed in IOCs or indicators of compromise, or it didn't happen, which I was like totally against it. So I was like, I know nothing about marketing either, but I was like actor centric intelligence. So I was like, that was an idea, and because the person that would like that would like what we're doing. And the person who wants IOCs, which are not threat intel, would uh, be turned off by that. So I think it was really good from that perspective. But I imagine the pitch then was totally rubbish and it's a million times better now. I remember the first version of our website was horrible. It looked like it was made like with notepad. <laughs> it, <laughs> it looked it, like it, a it probably was. It probably was too, yeah. <laughs> The competitive landscape where you work is uh, heavily funded. <laughs> I mean, most of the people you've been competing with had some hundreds of millions in in, in funding to uh, to go after the same customers. Was it a, a founding principle to be bootstrapped, or you just thought, look, we might not need people now. Let's figure it out later, and 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 you just at all times remained profitable, uh, or you just wanted to make a point of never being funded to 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 be free. No, we had some early discussions with some VC firms. You know, now there's a number of VC firms that are focused on cybersecurity and provide a lot of value to their portfolio companies. But back then, I don't think there was any, at least that we spoke to, any cybersecurity-focused VCs. So we were concerned that these folks that we spoke to were not able to add any value beyond the money. Um, so that was one aspect. And then once you're bootstrapped, you have no choice but to be profitable or be at least neutral because you don't have the money to go into the red. So yeah, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was, I'll say that was one of the biggest challenges. The competitors you have were so heavily funded. I mean, Simon, you worked with one. We'll talk about yeah. that in a minute. It was it was very challenging dealing with them um, just because like the marketing and the sales machine you were against. But in in comparison, you could build an organization with I think a better culture and you don't have to run quarter to quarter. You can incentivize people on the right kind of, medium and long-term goals that the company wants to achieve as well so in that in that way it was it was a lot better and i i think even at the end result when you know the company got majority acquired versus others that were heavily vc backed i think the actual you know money funds in going into people's pockets was significantly bigger um, and that comes with any bootstrap company that's successful. Looking at uh, the way that you that you did, uh, it's it's pretty interesting also to hear about the um, the early days because you spoke about uh, being a CTI researcher and so on back in the days that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it was not even uh, uh, it, it was not even the terminology yet, like cyber threat intelligence, right? How do you even start thinking about let's say something which still does not exist like did you come up with a solution to a problem you've seen you know other companies are dealing with and then you and then you need to to come up with a solution for that or was it more like a marketing uh, thing or or both uh, i think it was more the the thinking like what would i want if i was in the customer's shoes 
So yes, I got feedback from early customers and early, early people that we showed the plat the product to. Um, it was, it, but even what the feedback we, if someone said, "Hey, we can't buy this because we need a indicator compromise feed," we wouldn't change, and we were very, like, I can't think of many pivots as a company that we did, and even now, I mean, it was we're doing more than what we originally started with, but everything really remained focused on yes, that in, really good Intel collection, and now more things are happening around it. Um, so I think that was more the driver um, of what we did. Um, I think as well, um, being a, you know, an intelligence professional background, being a CEO, like now there's a lot of companies that are, that are run by kind of SMEs or subject matter experts in their area. But back then, most of them were run, and I don't want to say this negatively, but business guys, people who are really good at business or at finance or at sales. And I think now, now it's a lot, a lot changed, but back then it was mostly business people and not SMEs. So I was one of the few there um in a in a field um the other one is cyber threat intelligence you know it's one of the few fields where you can look to government and say hey the government is significantly ahead of i mean there's very few fields um that you could say a government government departments or government agencies do it better than the commercial space and will do it more efficiently and also they're spending so much money on it so a lot of it was about how do we take kind of traditional intelligence concepts and match that against in our case was financially motivated cybercrime. So there was very little material. I remember one being one of the first people at like the SANS Cyber Threat Intelligence Summit, which is a yearly event in Washington, DC area, when I was talking about intelligence requirements and how does that fit into a cyber threat intelligence program. Now everybody talks about it. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say it's like we invented things. It's just we took kind of traditional concepts and tried to align it with cyber threat intelligence and made sure we were adhering to that. And that appealed with the type of user and the ideal customer profile, which was a large organization with a head of intelligence that's former security service, military or law enforcement. One of the things that really fascinates me, and I thought about it once you once you uh, uh, mentioned before that when you worked for the other companies, maybe, maybe iSight, you, you also had, uh, you know, the telemetry and so on, something you didn't have in other places. And... To me, what's really striking every time I speak to people that are less familiar with uh, with the CTI field, how not non natural is the uh, uh, human intelligence side of things to people that are not from the field? Like they are thinking about cybersecurity as a, a hundred percent technical uh, uh, thing, and some of them won't naturally understand how how important and how crucial is the uh, the side of the human, of the human intelligence and, you know, the engagement with the threat actors uh, going and, you know, um, dirty your hands uh, in, inside the the, uh, the cybercrime uh, forums, uh, engaging hackers and so on in order to, to you know, to leverage more information that you sometimes cannot, can't get from the telemetry if you don't have this visibility like like others do. Nowadays, I think it's more natural to people and more, more people are aware of that. But uh, back in the days, I bet it was not that, um, you know, it, it didn't make sense to many people. Yeah, and I think people are, um, or even organizations and companies are biased on their perspective, like what they see, just like Intel 471's biased on our, you know, what we see. Um, an organization sitting... And I think this is why like a company like Intel Force of One could exist 
come from nothing, be bootstrapped and be very successful now uh, is because the companies, the big security companies have lots of telemetry. So what do they want to do? They want to get value out of their telemetry. So, okay, we can have a team that's spent looking at our, analyzing stuff that we already have. You know, we're a value add to what we're already doing. Cool. Everybody understands that. Um, and they're going to be less orientated to go out and get something externally, which you might not be able to correlate to what you've got internally. Um, and I talk about this in context of like, how do you do in cyber threat intelligence is kind of two main approaches and like incident centric analysis where you use telemetry and IOCs and data and you kind of build off that. And then the other side is what you described being the actor side and you're looking at an actor, the TTPs or tactics, techniques and procedures, how do they work and what are they planning? And it's typically different skill sets and different mindsets on each. It's more the incident centric is more the traditional security person, more the incident responder, forensics person. And that's a, you know, that's a good skill set to have. And that's a unique skill set. But it I'd say even more unique is the other side, being the ability to like look at the actor as people, you know, who are the social networks of the actors around them? What are the enabling services they're using? And then look at how that's working and how can you build a strategy or collection capabilities against that to track that in an ongoing way. Um, and I mean, ideally you have both. And if, if you can find people yeah. that know how to do both, like it's very, very rare. Like yeah. I'd say I can probably count, even now I could probably count on, you know, two hands, the amount of people that could do both of those approaches in the same person. And um, I think that's kind of it. And the human piece is mostly on the actor side, you know, some people think human is human analysis. It's not. Human is human sourced information. So you go in, you pretend to be a bad guy, you social engineer information out of a criminal that's, you know, hard to get, or you build a relationship over a long period of time to get information out of them. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting field. Like I said, it takes a lot from government intelligence agencies and intelligence departments and applies it to that. And I mean, where we came from was you know, everybody calls out Chinese, Russian cyber espionage groups publicly on their corporate blogs now. But back when we started, people were not doing that. Like people, the big vendors were scared to do it. The government was scared to do it or wouldn't to share mention it very much. To mention their nationality as well, right? Exactly. Or even like drop like TTPs of a group. Now yeah. I'm just reading something this morning. US government put something very specific, technical um, TTPs of North Korean threat actors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So things have changed a lot. Um, but yeah, there's, there's still and will always be a, uh, a desire and a need to do kind of the actor centric approach to intelligence. And, uh, um, you said about security. I mean, the reason why threat intelligence exists is security is not a perfect game. Like mm -hmm. if, if the amount, like these largest organizations in the world, they, the CEO, I mean, look at Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan Chase literally said security is the only area with no budget. If they could literally spend a certain amount of money that would make them 100% secure, they would have done it already. So now right. they're like saying that's not achievable. So let's use intelligence to drive risk within our organization. Um, so that's where intelligence fits into it. And I think, you know, I think every security person, you know, sometimes people are like, hey, uh, don't spend money on intelligence because you should send it on security. Um, that's a better approach. I, I'd say, hey, intelligence is there to drive the security investment so they're investing on the right things well said <laughs> i mean I, I can only imagine when you started the company this being a new field how, how concerned were you about you know, ensuring everything you were doing was legal where you were doing it 
the way you were doing it. I mean, now when you talk to your clients or when you talk to government stakeholders, you're, you're, it's a known thing. It's a known field. You're researchers, but weren't you afraid at the beginning that you'd be qualified or suspected of being something else? I mean, how, who do you even ask advice from at this stage? Yeah. I mean, I think the, at the start, I mean, you have to have good relationships with law enforcement. I've had that throughout my career, both working there. And then if you look at, you know, who you hire, you know, you need culturally people have to hundred percent toe the line and know what's legal and not, and don't even get close to the line of, of it. You know, back then, you know, we had to maintain and worked, you know, closely with law enforcement and different investigations. I mean, still happens now, but also now, I mean, law enforcement are clients, law enforcement across multiple countries around the world are clients of different threat intelligence vendors. And if there was an inkling of anything remotely shady, they wouldn't touch it with a 50 foot pole. And one of the sure. typical things is, is actually not so much like do, do Intel for someone or another threat intelligence vendors, are they doing bad things in the criminal underground? It's typically not that. It's more around hacking. Like, do you, does an organization hack back? Um, because, you know, technically that's, even if you're hacking the bad guys, you're breaking the law of a, of a country wherever you've done it. You know, the infrastructure you've, you've done it against or the person you've done it against, that's, that's breaking a law. And so that was more the key element. So I was less worried about that and just more worried that we, you know, hire the right people with the right culture and the right mindset. And, you know, that involves a huge amount of people with former law enforcement that know the know the laws in in their country and as well as have their relationships in those countries as well i mean you, you mentioned it again i mean cultural as a culture has a competitive advantage i think that's that was probably your only advantage uh, uh at the time besides you know the quality of you know, the, the the product the research and and the people but um I mean, I've, I've known you for five years even then it was very clear to see and that's no that's no critic of other companies in the space. I think it's very hard to build a culture when you are, you know, heavily funded and hire people at a pace that's just not organic. It's it's uh, it brings its own set of challenges. Uh, but how how conscious of how conscious of an effort was it to build a culture that you know attracts talent, that retains people, that incentivizes people the right way, so they don't take those shortcuts on the technical side, but also on the commercial side. Was this a conscious effort or you just thought I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the best version of myself within, you know, the parameters that I think are good for an organization culturally, and then hopefully people emulate or were you taking active measures to, to, to enforce that? No, it was very active and very purposeful. Um, the, you know, ultimately with any organization, the CEO sets the tone for the culture of the organization and in what's acceptable and what's not. And you can say, you can have a presentation, a PowerPoint with um, whatever you want to say around the culture, but ultimately it comes down to who gets hired, who gets fired and who gets promoted. Like ultimately it's about that. And we made it very early and even to this day, it's still the same, uh, you know, culture is not negotiable. And it's, you know, we always, when Intel for Summer does all hands, it's always run through, you know, what are the, you know, cultural, cultural aspects and how it's on all of us to, you know, uphold the culture. And if we see people, you know, getting off or, you know, being, doing things against the culture to kind of look to, can we bring them, you know, can we bring them back to what the culture is, you know, to adhering to the culture of the company. But yeah, it was definitely a deliberate act from almost day one. And I, I think as well, I mean, I'm not, I don't think that if you take VC that you have to be like, you have to not have that. 
I just think you, I mean, nowadays there's so many VCs, external investors that you can find if you have a culture and say, this is the culture of our company and this is how we operate. And this is just like for our people, for our investors, this is non-negotiable. You know, I think that's doable today. Um, whether it was back then when we started, I'm I'm not sure, but you know, we knew we were going to have a high, very high performing company in with very specific skills, which are very hard to find and maintain. And anybody can get at, you know, everybody you have can get offered more money from somebody else. It's just there. And we could hire more money to someone else in another organization. It's just, that's just the way it is. You can always do that. And so the culture and the mission was what set us apart. And yeah, we were very, you know, we even, you know, there were there were situations where we had to let people go that were not a good cultural fit, even though in their job day to day they were doing performing really, really well. And, and what were some of those non-negotiables? I mean, as especially early yeah, I mean, on. Yeah, I mean, humble. We always say humble experts and quiet professionals. You know, one of the key elements is cybersecurity has a lot of people who want to get their name out there, want to publish blogs, talk at conferences and things like that is there are certain organizations that need that. I mean, Intel for someone even needs that now. Um, but back then it's, you know, we didn't want people who were just driven by self-promotion and self-fame. It was more, hey, want to be the people behind the scenes, smashing the bad guys, you know, where our biggest successes are the ones nobody talks about. And it really was that and remains that. I mean, it becomes challenging as a company when you actually need to start getting the word out about your company, start doing marketing, and then nobody wants to do it. That's how you know the culture is really good. Um, I mean, a case in point, Intel 471's, you know, writing blogs and presenting at events is, is, is hard for intelligence analysts, really skilled Intel pros to do. We actually hired a reporter. So a reporter who's used to writing stories publicly, who does a lot of the Intel 471's blogs today and also a lot of the, uh, the public, public events, webinars and the like. So there was that, humble experts, quiet professionals, um, always do the right thing, even when it hurts. I mean, I could, I can't really say any examples, but I can talk of examples where we would have got big customer deals or big deals with organizations if, and we would have had to skirt the line ethically or legally, mainly, mainly ethically, never was asked to do anything illegal, but ethically, and we would always refuse to do it. And there were certainly other organizations that were prepared to do it. Um, when we weren't. So that was, you know, we always said, hey, to always do the right thing, or especially when it hurts, or even when it hurts was a was another big thing. And then really promoting kind of collaboration and camaraderie rather than competition internally. We wanted to avoid, you know, the organization becoming, you know, a political environment. And uh we would quash it at any at any point if we saw hints of that happening. So yeah, they were the main aspects. But if you look on Intel for someone's website, I think they're listed on there. Now, looking at your reputation nowadays as a company, which is obviously good and professional and uh, admirable when it comes to CTI, and and looking at uh, or the other side of things, trend of you know AI, ChatGPT, and the involvement on that front, is there any change in in the way you think or the aspect about the future, how you need to shape things, and not not only for Intel for Seven One, but generally for the industry, how we need to think about the the culture of uh, of the companies, the the roadmap, things like that. Yeah. So AI. I'd say myself and I think Intel 471 probably at the moment as well. Um, I mean, you'll have to ask them if it's changed, but I think it's sitting on the fence, kind of a wait and see approach to AI. 
you know, a number of competitors in the threat intelligence space have, you know, released chat GPT or other AI integrations. Um, there's definitely a lot of skepticism in the threat intel field around this. I mean, you know, threat intelligence is an inherently human driven task. I mean, you're trying to assess kind of intentions, goals of, of an adversary and how can the knowledge of what you have today drive, you know, what's likely or possible to happen in the future? I mean, is it a good thing going to, you know, revolu revolutionize, revolutionize uh, threat intel? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to say. I'm not sure. But yeah, I think we'll just say that at least for myself as I'm, you know, watching what, how that develops in threat intel. I think, I think it'd be more applicable to security in general or at, like, um, automation and making things faster before it gets bubbles up to a user. And I'm sure some of the folks at Intel 471 and other companies use it to get like summaries of different topics to help with their research. But generally, I don't see it remarkably changing threat intel or threat intelligence products and outputs. I also yeah. do agree about the security aspect as a whole, like, you know, even even in terms of data exposure, like what are you writing to ChatGPT or whatever other uh, bot out there? And yeah. where this data data go to, and uh, what what happens if it leaks, or what happens if the bot, you know, kind of learns the patterns of what you write and what you ask for, um, and what would be the consequences. So these are yeah. questions that not only Interval Four Seven One and other TTI companies are asking, but also any other organization out there. Yeah, I remember uh, a couple of years back reading about like a company that created a they would say AI driven bot. That they that they claimed in marketing would go into the underground and talk to criminals and get information out of them, and I remember thinking, "Yeah, good luck with that." Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I uh, I feel the same way about AI, like you know, being in the underground and talking to bad guys. You know, sure, um, and I think even just monitoring how do bad guys use AI is an interesting thing. But yeah, I'm I'm personally still on the fence. I don't know which way it's going to go. Thinking about CTI and dark dark web, you you said you you hate this uh, terminology. What do you prefer, underground, cybercrime? Yeah, the criminal or... criminal underground or closed sources. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, ultimately, it's a the it's a marketplace. You know, yeah. products, services, and goods, and threat actors around that, and it's really the underpinning for financially motivated cybercrime. Um, the actors involved in pretty much everything are in there directly or indirectly. And they go back to it when they need a kind of a, a service or a product yeah. of, of some sort. And the reason I hate it is like, I hate the iceberg where the iceberg has like the open <laughs> yeah. source above the water and then the iceberg yeah. at the bottom, like any iceberg is bigger at the bottom than the bit at the top. But yeah. the reality is, I mean, if it was a real iceberg, it'd be upside down because there's way more open source than what's defined in that dark web under the water thing. Yeah. So it'd be up, upside down. And then the single, the other thing is, I don't care whether it's a forum, a uh, what I say, whether it's on Tor, Tor they say dark web, deep web mean it's not indexed by Google because then there's Tor is you need to use a third party, a separate application to access those sources. But why do I care? Because people have created bridges into Tor, so you don't need the application anymore, and it's being indexed by Google. So is it deep or dark anymore? I don't know. So the reason I hate it is I think it's more important to classify these sources into like, how hard is it to get access to? Hey, it's on Google and you can access it easy. First level of 
hardness or difficulty of access might be a forum you need to register to get into. Okay, that's very easily to do. And the really hard to get is information you can only get out of people. So building a relationship with a cyber criminal over a year plus time, and they'll tell you things that are not public or not on any even forum. So I was, that's why I say, I like to say open source, I it's on Google, closed source is a barrier to entry. And like, that's the hard stuff. Like that's what Intel Force and One focus at that barrier to entry at the bottom and then all the way up to the top. And that's the space. And it's where quantity is nowhere near as big as open sources, but signal to noise ratio is really, really good because it's all bad. Um, and um, you don't have to review a million alerts. Like if you're alerting on things on Google, I mean, you're going to just be drowned in alerts and anything that's interesting, you're probably, or timely, you're probably going to miss it. Yeah. And, and speaking, you know, generally about the value, it's, it's also about, you know, if you're a company and you want to get alerted about things that are relevant to you, so it'd be, um, you know, threat actors speaking about your company, leaking data or, or the latest uh, POC to a, to a, you know, zero day, whatever, uh, the value that you're getting it doesn't matter if it comes from, from a tour based forum or from, I don't know, instant messaging or social media. Uh, the the important thing for the client should be to actually receive the alert on time, right? Uh, so I think yep. that this terminology is is again more about uh, sexiness and and making things attractive and marketable. Um, and I wanted to ask you the the reason I I mentioned dark web <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, cybercrime underground is um, this. I I think it, let me know if this is something you you ever thought about or hesitated about about. Whether to provide the client full access to uh, to actually providing them uh, the ability to search among all the data that you're scraping, versus providing them with uh, dedicated targeted alerts. So, because you know you can leverage both, right? Sometimes, but I do understand uh, companies that kind of limit the 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 first. Uh, right. Um, so, what do you think about it, and and where's the line? Where, where yeah. So, Inter- Intel Four Seven One actually does all three. You can go in there and search everything for whatever you want. Um, you can do that. The second one is intelligence requirements driven searching. So it's like, hey, everybody struggles with we're spending millions of dollars on a cyber threat intelligence program. What does success look like? So every organization hopefully has a risk register and cyber risks are a part of that. So they know what's the most important things, risks to their organization from a cyber perspective. That should drive intelligence requirements. And we have a schema to help people do that. And then you can configure the platform, Intel for someone's platform for that. I mean, it's good. It's easy to do. Different users might have different needs as well. So they can configure it from an organization, but also individually. And then they can also create alerts too. I mean, it's hard to be proactive with alerts on brand names because very rarely there's an organic company uh, bad guy. And I think there's a lot of misconception around it. Like they think, oh, I get access to the deep web. I'll just create alerts for my brand and I'm going to be like proactive. And it's like bad guys don't go in there and be like, hey, I'm going to hack XYZ bank tomorrow. Doesn't happen like that. It's more, how do I track the threat actors that I should be caring about that have attacked other banks or other organizations like me or in my sector or in my region and then proactively check as they evolve and change the TTPs how do I attract it like and that's the same thing with like 
indicators of compromise or organizations that build threat intel solely based on telemetry. It's like, it's like they're just reporting on things that are already happening. It's like people getting punched in the face all the time. And it's like, I'm not going to react until I see somebody else get punched in the face first. Like it's all great until you're the first, the one that gets punched in the face first with a new technique or a new way of working. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, uh, that's the way it works. So yeah, it's, it's all these different elements. Yes. You need to do alerting. Every organization does it, but you, you know, ideally you want to get, you know, customers to be where their intelligence requirements driven, which maps to their kind of their risk register. And then they can use that, not just for Intel 471, but their own, like what is this expensive cyber threat intelligence capability that this organization has? We got a team of analysts or whatever that costs many millions of dollars a year. What does it actually produce? Like, here's everything it produced versus the risks. Executives within and security executives will understand that and go, okay, that's the return on investment. So you, when you started the company, you were again in a, in a very, it was a very early industry, I would say, where there's a lot of educating um, um, with prospects, with, with everyone you interact with. How difficult was it or how challenging was it to stay tr- true to your vision versus becoming this boutique shop that just handles every every customized request? And uh, I mean, you, you you came in the field as as an expert, and I'd like to think that the people you interacted with, your potential clients were actually looking up to you for advice on how they should shape their, uh, uh, their intelligence strategy. Uh, but did you find out that they were actually very much opinionated and always constantly trying to, to use you as a, as an R and D center? And uh, how much of a battle was that? Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially early on, like when you ask prospect or customer feedback, I mean, they basically want you to become their like custom, you know, their custom intelligence vendor. And so we were very careful not to do that. You know, we never, you know, we were thankful that we would do, you know, we built intelligence subscriptions and the custom element is request for information. And you have certain number of RFIs per month, use it or lose it. Um, so we could build in capacity that way. And we stayed to that vision. I mean, the whole way through and even now, like there's no custom work. And I know because sometimes um, someone will be like, hey, we'll give you the deal, but we want you to produce three custom reports per month on A, B, these A, B, C topics. And we'd say, no, <laughs> we'll give you the subscription and you got the RFIs and this is what a good request for information is. Um, so we certainly stayed that way. Um, as opposed to the company, yeah, the, uh, the industry was definitely new um, at that time. You know, I think even now, I mean, a lot of organizations don't know how to use or consume threat intelligence, even like not even just our customers. You think of like security executives. And I think a lot of it's to do with people um, who've come into running threat intel programs, perhaps don't have the skill set. You know, they they run, say, incident response teams or security operations teams, which is a different skill set. Like the mindset is a key element. And then another challenge is who are the main customers for a cyber threat intelligence program? Like in a large organization, it's typically senior leadership. So they're the ones, the main customer of an intelligence program is like a CISO or C-level or maybe other you know, security leaders below them in a larger organization. The ones that are spending money on different security products, like so they you know, spend it on the right things at the right time. And I think that is challenging as well because a lot of those organizations, a lot of those people in those positions have never dealt with or been a consumer of intelligence. 
if they come out of military law enforcement intel community yes but a lot of them haven't so that was i think a lot of the challenge like how do you first how do you show value to your customers and your prospects and then the second one is how do you enable an organization or enable your customers so direct customers on the platform like intelligence teams to show value thankfully i think it i think we took taken you know taken a lot of organization a lot of people and a lot of journey in that what it looks like in the first year and the value they get is way less than in the third year um, of working with them and then i think if you're there for three years you're kind of working with them for life and even when they move organizations the amount of times people have reached out to me and said hey haven't put in my notice yet, but I'm going to this new organization. As soon as I figure out how procurement works, we're going to buy and sign up with you. That <laughs> happens so many different times. But yeah, I mean, I'd say even now there's, I mean, the challenge still remains. I think just there's a lot more people working in commercial space in cyber threat intelligence that know know what good looks like um, than what it used to be. And I think that's different, but still, there's still a long way to go. It's not a quote, but generally speaking, it's still a challenge to uh, uh, do a proof of value to uh, CTI, to security experts in corporates, even people with uh, experience and knowledge in CTI. It's, it's still a challenge. It's, it's still a struggle. And many times you need the um, vendor that you're going to sign up with or, or want, to, want to POC to, to help you. Uh, there in in data like to do the marketing uh, internally so so that's the other side of the coin so we started by saying that um, you know it's it's much more developed than it used to be when you mark only started uh intel 471 but yeah the other side is it's still a challenge i mean although it's uh much more trivial and part of many security programs you still sometimes need to uh, uh to fight for it or or to explain it and you know you said uh, the value you're getting on the third year of subscription is much higher so it's also i guess a challenge to tell you want tell it to a prospect hey the first year is going to be super hard and you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time marketing it internally and create the processes to actually take action on alerts explain it to other IT teams, whatever, and only in the third year you're gonna uh, get the, the the highest value. So it's 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 still a challenge, and at the end of the day, the corporates need to to deal with this first year and uh, make the best out of it. And Intel for someone has a use case bible, and so they actually start with that and be like, okay, you're a customer now. Like these are the easiest deliverables for you to produce as a customer to internal stakeholders to show value in the first year and. You know, justify your existence with POCs. It's hard. I mean, more the POCs we, you know, we want to always establish like what does success look like before you do a POC because sometimes they're just straight off. You know, someone's looking for something completely different to you, yeah. um, and it just makes no sense. It is very much a partnership. We put a lot of work on actually the prospective customers side of the house to be like, here's this stuff to fill in. You got to give us all this information before we can even. We can start a POC. You know, be, being being a CEO, um, I think in the in the early days, it's very clear that you know it's a team effort. And uh, even though you're in charge, you're the CEO, the founder, and or co-founder, you know, most people they're very close to you. You can impact them culturally. They get enough face time with you to to know you as a as a person. But as the company grows, it it gets harder and harder. And going back to 
shaping the culture, you know, from the top and 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 being the role model in that sense. Uh, I know you to be very approachable. It's one of the first things I noticed, and to me, which was striking from the outside looking in, that you know you're having drinks with uh, with 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 people in the company. You're very friendly. You're joking around. I don't think you you're a different person, <laughs> whether you're talking to you know someone in your company or an external stakeholder. But I also know from experience that some people can't handle that when they work for an organization and they they tend to find ways to exploit it or take advantage of it. I mean, was there a point in time where you thought, well, I, I do need to now play the role of the CEO, put, put that hat on and be a different person in certain contexts. Uh, otherwise, I'm inviting certain types of, of uh, behaviors. Um, did, did you feel like that? Was it ever a challenge to you? Yeah, I think the more the challenge was you coming from being a like an operator CEO who knows a lot of stuff, and eventually you have a leadership team around you, which are really, as you're getting bigger, you make more. And I told people this all the time, like, hey, as, as we become bigger company, I'm going to make, I have to make decisions and I make more and more assumptions as we get bigger. And if I'm going to walk into a wall, they better tell me. So I tell them that, but I found it challenging. And I think Jason too, but I mean, I think we're better at it than we've ever been, um, was the, you have your leadership team and you can't, you don't want to undermine them, right? they're there to do a role and they're very, very good at that role as they wouldn't be there. And you need to support them. And a lot of them like, hey, I'm not just their mentor in some ways. Jeff Needham is a CRO of Intel 471. I mean, he's been probably doing sales since he's before he was 20. So he knows way more than I'll ever know about sales and the process around that and how to build and run teams. So it's bad for the company if I'm interfering and stopping something he's going to have to do. So yeah, I have to build a relationship with the people that were working for me and so that they felt comfortable to give that feedback and be like, Mark, you need to get out of this because I'm trying to do this and this is why. And so I'm being mentored by the people who I'm supposed to be mentoring too. So it's almost like two-way mentoring. Um, as well humbling a little bit no <laughs> yeah definitely and then some of it is uh and then some folks are not that good at giving kind of critical feedback to the boss so we ended up hiring or you know promoted within a chief of staff so alex phillips who's australian based in the uk so she was another way to facilitate communication to me kind of not directly and yeah i don't think it ever got bad but i certainly found it challenging like as the organization, you're like, it's like you're steering an aircraft carrier. You know, you're not, it's not like driving a go-kart where you can just turn the wheel and away we go. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's, it was definitely steering it. And like any change you make, it's, it's more at the strategic level and you might not see any, you know, any change or any impact from that till three or six months later. Um, so I think that was the most challenging, less around people exploiting it. It was more around the, how do you operate as best you can that you don't undermine the great people that you have as part of your executive team and even the next levels down as well. I don't feel like you're very much interested in money. So you're, you're pretty disinterested. Uh, I, I wonder what, what drove you to create your own company instead of being a, you know, a researcher. I, I don't think that was the driving force for you to, to, to make it. And you've been very successful at it now, but yeah, what, what was really the, um, where that desire came from? Cause it, it brings, so many other challenges that are completely unrelated to the subject matter. Um, and, and being a CEO is, is not as fun as you know, or glamorous as it sounds to, to some people. So what, what drove you and what drives you now? Because you can tell us maybe a bit more about what you do now. Yeah, CEO is, 
unless you have really strong people you can rely on. That was Jason, who was in working with us very early, you know, new CEO now. But even then, it's a pretty lonely life and it's super hard work and it does impact your, you know, work-life balance. People will say about that, that's out the window. Often, most of the things that come to you are, are quite not, not positive. I mean, a lot of positive stuff comes to you, um, but certainly there's a, a lot of negative, which there aren't really any easy, good answers to it. So yeah, I always say if someone's going to create a startup and, you know, they almost engineer it from a financial perspective, it's probably not going to be successful, right? You have to really understand, like, what are you trying to do? You know, why now? What's the timing around it? Who's going to buy it? And why is it going to be successful? And what's the value you're going to bring um, to that? And so really some of the key elements of why we started Intel 471 was because we thought we could do it better. You know, the market changed. These banks hired their own intelligence analysts. They wanted a different product. What was out there in the market? You know, there was a lot of marketing fluff. I mean, dark web, for example, there was a lot of that. There was clearly a, a space um, for what I thought. Could, and I was, I was more concerned, are we going to be a niche capability? And if we would have focused stayed on what we just did, which was just Intel collection, I think it probably would have been an, a niche capability. But now Intel for someone does a lot more. So yeah, I think that that was the main thing. It was like, we can change this industry and we can mature the industry. And a lot of my early talks, they're still on SlideShare um, around cyber threat intelligence was about changing the industry. And yeah, money came later. I mean, with success and changing the industry comes money, um, no doubt about it. But yeah, CEO is not as glamorous. I mean, the out there drinking you mentioned is probably the best part, at least the bit that I like the best. <laughs> um, the, the most, the how to, you know, everyone's watching you all the time and how you communicate and change and how you need to evolve you and your role and how you operate is probably the most challenging with the kind of lonely nature of, you know, it's lonely at the top, you know, and I think it'd be worse if you had a board and say your company was underperforming and you're the CEO of a company and you're the, you know, the whipping boy or whipping girl of the board and you just got to take that and you need to show a positive face with the rest of the company. I think it'd be even worse. So yeah, it kind of led into like, I don't want to be CEO of a company again. I think, you know, I've done it once. I collectively, everybody makes mistakes and we made mistakes, cost us a lot of money and time, not enough money to fail, but, you know, I can add a lot of value and that's what I'm looking to do um, or am doing with advising and being on boards of a number of cybersecurity startups. And it's, it's really focused on the top end of the market. So the most cutting edge cybersecurity products for the large enterprise, like, I don't know how to make a product or a, or a cybersecurity company that helps small and medium business. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, I'm a specialist at the high end. Like, how do you make, how do you make a, something that's new with a new problem that people are having and how do we, you know, work together with some really smart people and, you know, by helping them avoid the same mistakes, hopefully can save them a huge amount of money and time and make them more successful. So that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm looking to do. And, you know, really like the variety of work with a number of different companies. So Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. I mean, I, I learned a lot and I feel like you, uh, to me, you killed a lot of uh, sacred cows today. You surprised yeah. me in a very good way. And it's the, the best way to be surprised when you're when you're learning something. So thank you so much. And uh, I'm looking forward for the next time already. Cool. Thanks very much for the opportunity, guys. Take it easy. Thanks, Mark. Have a good day. You too.